Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, January the 7th on the new year, 2024. We're still examining, imagining that new year. What's it going to be like? Yesterday, I did a show with uh, my entrepreneurial Silicon Valley friend, uh, Keith Tier, imagining what we have in store for 2024. Keith is an unabashed capitalist and unabashedly optimistic, and he cites 1975 as an example of a moment where everyone thought there was a crisis and it actually triggered a huge economic revival and prosperity, at least according to Keith and a Wall Street Journal columnist, um, Andy Kessler. My guest today, though, when it comes to perhaps 2024 and certainly the future of capitalism is a little less optimistic or certainly utopian. Uh, Colin Mayer is a longtime Oxford professor uh economic official entrepreneur uh and he has a new book out very interesting new book an important new book it's out this week capitalism and crises how to fix them colin is joining us from his home in oxford in the united kingdom uh colin you're an economist so perhaps you can talk in quantifiable terms what are the chances of there being a major crisis of capitalism in 2024 or might one argue that we are living through a long crisis, or perhaps a crisis that's been going on since the beginning of the century? Very high probability of another crisis appearing alongside the crisis that we're currently addressing. And the reason for that is that uh, we're encountering increasingly frequent, increasingly severe crises. And underpinning that is some fundamental problems that we've got with our capitalist system, which we're not getting sorted. Colin, you're an expert on the the Anglo-American version. When you talk about these crises of capitalism, are you focusing on the English and the American version, or would you include the Northern European ones as well? I'm not exclusively by any means focusing on North American or Anglo-American crises. They emerge in lots of different places, different systems. But it must be said that the UK and the US have had their fair share of them, starting with the dot-com bubble crisis at the beginning of the 2000s, then the financial crisis. We talk about the financial crisis as being a global financial crisis, but actually it was predominantly an Anglo-American one with some uh, fallout in Europe, but not a great deal beyond that. Uh, And the crises have continued to be afflicting in particular uh, the UK and the US. And let me just come back to your starting point about that optimism from 1975, which was indeed a severe downturn Oil prices, uh, Middle East war, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and in particular, the downturn in the UK was dramatic, uh, much along the lines of the problems we've currently got. 
And yes, there was a revival from that. Uh, and uh, the world picked up. But I think one has to recognize that the trend really since the 1960s has been of increasing problems in many respects. Uh, and this is very well documented in a book by Robert Putnam called The Upswing. The uh, US in particular reached its high point in terms of at least uh, many measures that he describes in his book in the 1960s. And the problems have basically been accelerating since that heyday in the 1960s to where we've reached now. So I'd put this in a slightly longer term perspective that although things were particularly dire in the middle of the 1970s, they haven't actually got progressively better. If anything, they've got progressively worse. Yeah, and we had the Cambridge economy, uh, Cambridge, uh, Cambridge University uh, political economist. I'm sure you know her and her work, Helen Thompson, on the show. She's been on a couple of times. She had a book out suggesting that we're returning to the 70s. Uh, you mentioned Putnam. He's been on the show. And, and that argument that everything changed with what economists call the neoliberal epoch. Uh, do you believe in the term neoliberal? Uh, we've, we've done lots of shows on the history, the rise, and indeed the fall of neoliberalism. Is your narrative about this long-term crisis of capitalism, Colin, is it bound up with neoliberalism? Was capitalism by definition in crisis as the neoliberals gained control of economic policy? We, we did a show uh, a couple of weeks ago with uh, Cambridge University, his, uh, a Stanford University historian who's written a book about uh, Friedman, Milton Friedman, a, a big major book on him, is is the um, the victory of, 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 of the Friedmanites over the Keynesians, is this triggering this long-term crisis of capitalism? Yeah. yeah, I talk a lot about the neoliberal perspective and uh, Milton Friedman and a lot of the problems and the changes that have occurred since the 1960s can be dated back to his book, Capitalism and Freedom, uh, which put forward the notion that has really come to dominate business practice, policy, and business teaching around the world. And that is that there is one and only one social responsibility of business, to use its resources and engage in activities designed to increase its profits so long as it stays within the rules of the game, which is to say uh, engages in open and free competition without deception or fraud. Now, that was his very clear statement about what the purpose of business is, and it gained increasing traction steadily from the 1960s when he first put it out. Then he republished it in the New York Times at the beginning of the 1970s. And it became the absolute accepted view around the world about what business is there to do. Uh, and in many respects, he was addressing what was a very significant problem about the control of business and business needing to uh, recognize that it's there to deliver benefits for its shareholders. 
But in the process of doing that, it's created immense problems. It's created immense problems, most obviously, in terms of the environment, but we're increasingly recognizing in relation to the uh, social side, the inequality and the social exclusion uh, that it's created as well. And Angus Deaton and M. Case. Yeah, Angus, uh, uh, Angus very... has been on the show. Of course, Angus Deaton and, yeah. uh, won the Nobel Prize. He teaches at yeah. Princeton. I'm sure you know him. Um, so uh, let's try and make sense of this, at least in you, in your mind, um, uh, Colin. You've written and you've talked about the moral bankruptcy of capitalism. Is there a moral bankruptcy of capitalists? Were capitalists thinking differently about capitalism in the 1950s or 60s? We had the head of the, cl uh, the Club de Rome on uh, last year talking about the biggest problem with capitalism being the structural one of the markets and the short-term demands of shareholders. It's the problem that somehow in the in the 70s, capitalists began, the people who manage our firms and our economy began to think differently? Yes. Or is it the problem with the market itself, the very structure of stock market investments and short-term gain? Well, those two are very interrelated. And yes, there was a change in thinking that began to affect business practice and public policy formulation. And that's what Friedman was really trying to address. He saw business as a, a, adopting much more of a social agenda uh, in the 1940s and the 1950s. Uh, and his view was that that was not the job of business, that uh, business leaders were not uh, appointed, they were not elected to do that. Uh, they had no authority to do anything other than pursue the interests of their investors and that they were engaging in political meddling uh, for which they had no democratic base. Uh, and so he was really pushing against this. And that began to influence the way in which business leaders operated. Uh, and so in large part, it was an attempt to really stop a greater social conscience from his point of view, infecting the minds of business. And that has really been the source of a lot of the problems that we've had. Now, it's also, though, on the other hand, linked to your second point about the role of markets, because the point I make in my book is that now, fundamentally, there isn't anything wrong with Friedman's assertion that companies should be delivering profits for their investors. Of course they should. You know, that's what a business is there to do. And that's why people invest in it. And that's why it can raise resources that are acquired to address problems. But in the process of doing that, they shouldn't create problems. And the notion of what is a profit of a business is something that we have simply misconceived. And we are looking at profit in cases where companies are not delivering profits at all, where they're benefiting from creating detriments and harms. And those are 
instances of where the behavior of business creates real anxiety and real sense of uh, approbation, which it of 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 what business is is feigning to do that uh, is in essence causing a serious black backlash that we're we're currently observing. What we what we need to do is to recognize what is the real basis of a company profiting and what should be what it what should it be doing to earn that profit we're speaking with colin mayer um oxford university uh professor and the author of capitalism and crisis a new book how to fix them most important certainly the most important arguably uh, issue uh, facing us today in 2024. Colin, uh, one of your previous books, which has a very intriguing title, it did very well, Prosperity, Making Business, Better Business Makes the Greater Good. Um, is, is this the argument also in capitalism and crisis that the role of government, uh, the role of, of business is to make the greater good? And unless business addresses that, these crises of capitalism will continue yes that business is there to solve problems you know that's that's the fundamental reason why business exists and in the process of solving problems it should profit from solving those problems but what the book that i'm bringing out capitalism crisis adds to that story is that alongside the profit that companies earn from solving our problems, it's also been profiting from creating problems. And that's what underpins the crises that we're currently facing in terms of the environmental crisis, in terms of the crisis around the pandemic, the uh, energy crisis coming after the Ukraine invasion, the food shortages, the inflation crisis. And we're going to see increasing crises coming in the future in the form of what AI is going to be doing, what potentially genetic engineering is going to do. And those crises in large part stem from business seeking to profit, not just from solving our problems as individual societies in the natural world, but also creating problems. And that is a feature of the way in which we structured business and our market system. That is to say, we've defined a profit as coming not just from problem solving, but from problem creation as well. Let's think historically, um, Colin. If, if, we, if we knew the future in the middle of the 19th century, in the early 19th century, we used your criteria, then would we even have allowed an industrial revolution? Could it be argued that if, if you use your, your argument about the, the better business be, being responsible for the greater good, that the industrial revolution itself would have been killed, so to speak, at birth? No, on the, on the contrary, the industrial revolution would have been promoted in a way that increase the extent to which resources were flowing into it. And the reason for that is that the feature of the Industrial Revolution, as it started indeed in 
Britain, which was the workshop of the world, was that it was using technology to solve problems that people encountered in the 18th and the 19th century. And it would have, if anything, helped to have stimulated that notion of businesses being there to find innovative ways of solving problems. And what it would have done is at the same time to have introduced a recognition that business in terms of solving those problems shouldn't be exploiting its workers, it shouldn't be exploiting the environment, it should be incurring the costs associated with avoiding those detriments and focusing on those elements of innovation that were really helping to solve the problems that existed in terms of creating innovative solutions. Now, that's really precisely the element that we need to carry forward into the 21st century when we're thinking about the role that AI and technology is going to play in the future. How is it that we can think about those innovations and revolutions as forms of helping us to address problems that we're facing in terms of inequality problems around the world, in terms of health problems, in terms of environmental problems. And that is what the best businesses are currently doing and the way in which they think about the way in which they operate. I want to get to AI. I want to also talk about oil companies. But we had Simon Johnson, an MIT economist who used to be the chief economist at the IMF. I'm sure you know him and his work. He has a new book out, Power and Progress. He covers in some ways the same material, though his book, I think, is more historical than yours. He he writes in the book about different kinds of entrepreneurs, and he writes in depth about the political economy of entrepreneurialism. How important is that? The political economy is the basis on which the, uh, the economic system and business operates. And the notion of the political economy that has really laid behind the, the way in which business operates is the notion that markets of themselves ensure that there's an alignment of interests between business and our interests as individual societies in the natural world. And we've placed a great deal of emphasis on this role of competition. And that competition basically ensures that new innovations deliver benefits for us auto automatically through a, a process of creative destruction, as it's sometimes termed. The Schumpeter term. The Schumpeter view. But what, we, what we're increasingly recognizing is that the market cannot and does not do that uh, entirely of its own accord. And Adam Smith, when he first put forward this notion of the invisible hand as aligning the interests of business and investors and profit with broader social uh, uh, and individual interests, really had underpinning it his other book alongside the wealth of nations, namely the theory of moral sentiments, the idea that yes, that invisible hand and competition works, but provided that there is a moral foundation to what business and business people think that they're doing. And what has happened is that in picking up this notion 
of the way in which markets operate in terms of promoting social success. We've lost sight of what Adam Smith was saying about that moral foundation. And the moral foundation, as I translate it in, into my book, really tries to simplify Adam Smith's uh, idea in terms of a very straightforward notion of what I term the moral law. And the moral law is that companies should not profit at the expense of others. They should incur the costs of, in, of avoiding inflicting problems on others, social problems, individual problems, environmental problems. And where they do cause those problems, they should incur the costs of cleaning up the mess of the problems that they're creating. Because in the process of creating those difficulties and problems, they are inflicting detriments not just on other individuals and societies, but also on other companies. Uh, and so they're engaging in a form of unjust enrichment. And we should stop that from happening by expecting that business should be responsible. It should incur the costs of cleaning up the mess. At the moment, what we measure as a profit is not a true profit because it doesn't include the costs associated with cleaning up that mess. It's an overstatement of the profit that companies are making. And we're getting a serious misallocation of resources as a consequence. Well, speaking of moral foundations, uh, Colin Mayer is offering one. Uh, another way of finding your own personal moral foundation is by reading Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, uh, which really addresses a lot of these moral crises and issues of society, not just economic, but cultural, political, sexual, and social. It's an excellent publication. I'm going to run a short feature on Liberties, and then we'll be back with Colin uh, Mayer to talk about how we're going to fix the crisis of capitalism. So don't go away, anyone, if you want to hear about the fix. Colin, we'll be back in a second. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're speaking with Colin uh, Mayer, the author of an important new book, Capitalism and Crises, How to Fix Them. Before the break, Colin, you were talking about the absence of a moral foundation, of course, citing uh, Adam Smith's great work on this and talking about unjust enrichment of certain capitalist companies. What about oil firms? Should they just shut down? What would you do in your world if you were in charge of everything um, with uh, the, the shells and the exons of the world who seem to be only doing damage? Not at all. The, the oil companies over the last few years have increasingly been recognizing that they're not oil companies any longer. They're energy companies. They're there to solve the world's energy problems. And increasingly we are recognizing that there are two aspects of this. One of which is that they shouldn't be destroying our environment through CO2 emissions and other emissions which cause global warming. But secondly, they have to ensure 
that energy is affordable and available to the poorest people anywhere in the world. And that social element means that it's not just a matter of an energy transition from oil to renewables, but it has to be a just transition, a just transition in which business ensures that oil, uh, that energy is accessible at an affordable price, uh, in particular, if it's in the form of renewable sources. But is anyway, now, it's, it's all very well talking about this, and it makes sense, and I'm sure you teach it at the business school at Oxford and all professors. We've had Rebecca Henderson on the show. I'm sure you're familiar with her work, talking about it. Uh, she teaches at Harvard University. Um, are any of the oil companies actually doing this rather than, so to speak, spewing out this language from their marketing department? Well, they were moving very much in this direction uh, up until the uh, in invasion of the Ukraine and the energy crisis uh, hit us. Uh, and then, since then, they put a, a, a break on that process. Now that, but that brings out very clearly the notion of what it is that we're looking to those energy companies to do. They have to move away from fossil fuels towards renewable sources uh, to avoid the climatic disaster that will otherwise occur. But in periods such as those that occurred following uh, the invasion of Ukraine, they have to ensure that energy is available on, on an affordable basis as well. And so they shifted back towards fossil production and opened up the oil wells again. Now, what they should, however, be doing at this point is not to simply take the windfall profits that they've made as a consequence of that and the oil price hikes and gas price increases that occurred, but they should have taken those profits and reinvested in them in their businesses to engage even faster and further in renewable sources. And that is what they did not do. And that element of, in essence, rewarding investors on the basis of windfall gains, but still not having solved the environmental problem, was a failure on the part of energy companies to recognize what was needed in terms of bringing that just transition about. That is what is needed going forward, that energy companies recognize that their role is to solve energy problems. And until they've done that in a socially just way, then they should be reinvesting profits rather than paying them out to shareholders in a form that ensures that they incur the costs of cleaning up the mess that they're creating. Are there examples of these kinds of morally responsible capitalist companies that you cite or that come to mind for your book and please don't mention unilever any every time we have this conversation people always throw out unilever what about the tobacco companies um uh, philip morris for example seems to want to try and reinvent itself even changing its name um where can we look to find models colin for a morally responsible capitalist company or sector in the 21st century. Okay, let, let, let me start off by 
answering your question in relation to what a term the sim stocks tobacco companies alcohol companies gambling companies fossil fuel arms manufacturers etc now many of those in particular cigarette companies and uh, alcohol and gambling are selling addictive products and what many of them and philip morris is an example of this realizes that those products are no longer viable products going forward and philip morris for example has made it clear uh that it's it's largest selling brand uh marlboro is no longer uh a viable product it's essentially a stranded asset uh for for philip morris uh and it's seeking to shift away uh from tobacco production what in general uh those sin stock companies need to do is to recognize that in many cases they're serving some sort of function they're allowing people to enjoy themselves they're providing cheap products they're products that help people to socialize but they're also creating immense problems associated with those addictive products in terms of the health consequences and the environmental consequences of them what they need to do is to shift their production away from creating the detriments towards creating the benefits without those detriments now what philip morris is doing is basically to move in the direction of uh vaping as an alternative we know that that is by no means a perfect uh solution yeah, i mean some people argue that it's actually worse than smoking. it's actually worse uh than than cigarette production but uh to give you an example of where a company is i think moving in the right direction uh is a company we've been doing some work with in oxford namely asahi uh and in particular it's european activities it's uh it's part of a of a japanese Asahi, uh, A-S-A-H-I. A-H-I. And that's and a what, beer company, isn't it? Or it was a beer company. And what they're trying to do is to realize, to recognize that uh, they need to shift away from alcohol uh, production to selling more low or no alcohol beers. And they've reinvented their purpose along the lines of trying to promote that at first they tried to do it in terms of encouraging people to drink with moderation but people don't like being told to stop doing things and then they realized that actually that there was a real benefit associated with selling no alcohol beer and that is it allowed people to socialize people who felt excluded because when they went into a restaurant or a pub uh, and uh, they felt that they had to drink alcohol but didn't want to have to drink alcohol they felt socially excluded and that that there was a, a substantial and growing market of people who wanted to cons- be able to consume beer without having to consume alcohol now that that is an illustration of a company that's seriously trying to address uh, a social as well as a health problem but to come back more generally to your question of you know, are there examples of companies that are really doing this effectively the answer is absolutely and there's in particular a country where there are a large number of companies that are getting this right it so happens it's a country 
that has one of the highest GDP per capita. I hope it's not Denmark, Colin. We always hear about Denmark. It is going to be Denmark. Oh my God. How did but, I guess? But 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 let but me we can't as, as Hillary Clinton famously said in that now 2016 debate with Bernie Sanders when he was throwing Denmark at her, saying America can become like Denmark. Uh, Hillary said, we all love Denmark, but it's a very hard place to replicate. Well, let me tell you that it's not that hard a place to replicate uh, and that it doesn't take a revolution in terms of politics as a society to do it, but that one does have to recognize that underpinning its success as being a high income, low inequality, happy place uh, for its citizens is the nature of its business. And this is something that is not sufficiently mm. well understood, that the reason why Denmark is really so successful is that it has a very distinct business model, namely that it's a high proportion of its businesses are what are termed enterprise foundations. They are, in many cases, some of the largest companies in the world uh, that are owned by foundations. They don't just have... Yeah, I, I take that point, Colin, but it, correct me if I'm wrong. Last time I wrote, read about the Danish economy, it was increasingly dominated by one or two of these new uh, weight loss uh uh, technology companies or weight loss medication technology is that does that speak of any kind of moral foundation well let 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 me tell you a little bit about the company that you're talking about that company is called nova nordisk uh and nova nordisk produces insulin used in the treatment of type 2 diabetes and what nova nordisk did and it's owned by a foundation the nova nordis foundation it's also listed uh on the danish stock market and uh, traded in the us it's uh, huge right what proportion of the danish economy does it actually represent it now represents a uh, uh, a particularly significant proportion of the danish economy because in the process of developing uh its uh insulin drug uh, it came across the idea of not only treating diabetes through insulin, but that they looked to ways of finding alternative treatments that didn't necessarily involve uh, taking insulin. And that led them in the direction of recognizing that diet and weight uh, were critically important factors that uh, caused uh, diabetes. And that's how they hit upon this uh, weight-reducing drug called Wegovi. And Wegovi has become a blockbuster, uh, making Novo Nordis the largest company by market capitalization in Europe. Uh, and uh, it's an indication of how a purposeful business that sees itself as being there to solve a problem. And the way in which uh, Nova Nordis uh, formulated its uh, problem was to uh, defeat diabetes around the world. Most diabetes in the world is in low and middle income countries, which could not afford uh, to purchase its insulin. So it looked for these alternative ways of treating. 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, there's a whole book here, and I don't want to spend too much more time talking about it, Colin. But isn't one of the problems with all this is that this this new drug might I, I, we can we can all understand the arguments for it that you take this drug and it stops you eating, but then you're addicted to it because if you go off it, you start eating again. So isn't this, if you like, the foundations not very moral, perhaps the immoral foundations for a brave new world? My point here is not to talk about Denmark or these weight reduction drugs, but to argue that we never know the future. So one. One company that seems to be doing good in the 2020s will be deemed the most evil company in the 2050s. Now, that is exactly my point. You're absolutely right, Andrew. If one just thinks about it in terms of, well, you know, Nova Nordisk is looking to create the largest profits it possibly can. That is exactly the scenario that will emerge. And Nova Nordisk will just be a flash in the pan and it will go down like some of the other great companies. But, and this is where I think this notion of the nature of business is so important to understand. If, as appears to be the case, because it's owned by a foundation whose purpose is not to make money, hmm. but to solve a problem of diabetes around the world, if that company goes on being run in a way of recognizing it's there to solve problems, not to create problems. It will have to make sure that Wegovi does not become an addictive uh, drug uh, that people have to go on consuming if they're not to get put on weight again. It will have to ensure that it is not profiting from creating problems. And that is exactly why most businesses fail at the end of the day and why capitalism ends up creating so many problems because they lose sight of the fact that they're not there simply to generate profit they are there to solve problems without creating them and that is the process that business should be following it should recognize that it will never perfectly solve problems it will always create problems but it is its responsibility to clean up the mess the, that it creates as a byproduct. And that is the element that my book is really emphasizing, that we should think about the purpose of business as a progressive process of improving our livelihoods, improving our societies, in improving our environment. And it's the job of business to go on ensuring that we progress in that way. Uh, and that is why the notion of a profit and what is the structure of business that ensures that business really does that is so critically important. Let's end on AI. You mentioned it before. We know that tech is in itself addictive. Uh, as you talk, Colin, it, it seems as if the, the huge events last year around open AI and how to run the company, the arguments for and against uh, effective altruism are the, the heart of your uh, the heart of your argument. Were you particularly disappointed with perhaps the defeat of the effective altruists at OpenAI, uh, and 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 was the the boardroom fight at OpenAI an example of, um, of, of in real time of what you're arguing in the book? And of course, particularly important given 
what some people see as the existential consequences for humanity of AI. And we no. have no idea of how they're going to work out. No, I mean, this, the, 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 this notion of altruism is entirely misconceived. You know, that is precisely what I'm arguing against. Uh, and, you know, you AI... You know, friend of Toby Orr that he teaches at Oxford, doesn't he? Yes, I do. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, man, man, many of those ideas have actually emerged uh, from uh, people in Oxford. But that, and AI really illustrates the dangers of that uh, very clearly. Uh, you know, if one's looking for one thing uh, for AI to do in the future, and that is to ensure that it retains its notion of AI being there to solve humanity, that uh, its function is to create a basis by which we can really enhance uh, the role of humans and humanity in terms of the way in which our world emerges. Uh, and the notion of uh, AI as being driven by profit-seeking companies uh, that are seeking to really benefit uh, from AI in terms of enhancing the degree to which they are creating a knowledge base that is profitable for those firms. That poses really serious risks of us losing control over AI going forward. Uh, and that element is one that, in terms of the notion of what business should be doing going forward, is a very key illustration of how, if we have simply profit-motivated companies, uh, we risk innovations that are going to be seriously detrimental for humanity going forward. We need to start from the basis that those AI companies are there to develop AI in a form that does not cause detriment for humanity. Uh, and that that has to be a fundamental objective of uh, the Microsofts and the other AI companies of the world. Well, let's end, Colin. It's a fascinating conversation. There's, there's so many, so many other things we could talk about. One thing that we haven't mentioned is the role of government. Of course, at the moment, in terms of the AI debate, a lot of it is about government regulating AI, particularly in Europe, Margaret Vestager is addressing this. Uh, and even in the US, there's a recognition by the Biden administration that government needs to play a role. In terms of fixing the crises of capitalism, um, you've laid out a good, uh, strong argument about the, the moral responsibility of companies. What about government? Government has a key role to play in terms of ensuring that we have the laws that will align the interests of business with our broader societal, individual, and natural world concerns. And that's why, coming back to the Danish example, you know, what is so important about the, the Danish context is that there is a, a corporate law, potentially one of the, the best forms of corporate law, namely the enterprise foundation law that underpins the success of those enterprise foundations in Denmark. And that role of government in ensuring that the legal base of the business 
takes a form that promotes purposeful business that's there to profit from solving problems, not profiting from creating problems, is at the heart of business. Now, that focus on corporate law stands in contrast to simply looking to regulation, to regulation of, for example, AI as the way of solving the problems of AI in the future. They won't solve the problems of AI or any other problems that we face in the future. If we are still afflicted by businesses that see their role as being to profit even at the cost at, uh, at, and at the expense of the rest of us and the natural world. If it's not the case that the purpose of business is aligned with our objectives as individual societies in the natural world, then business, and in particular business that is driven by AI, will find ways of getting round regulations and uh the the role of government in that context will be seriously undermined by the conflict of interest that exists between the interests of business in profiting and the interests of government in promoting our social and environmental well-being